I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land we're broadcasting from today and the lands that you're listening to us from. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. I take a moment to acknowledge traditional custodians, connection to and care for country that here extends back some 60,000 or so years and continues today. I also acknowledge any First Peoples listening to this episode. Have a look at how you can make it safer. Like, where do you want your Jenny Craig paddock to be? And what's your water supply like? Can you improve your water supply? Register your property with, if you're in Victoria, with the Department of Agriculture and get a pick number if you haven't already. If you do plan to evacuate early, ring those places, ring the council, find out if they have places you can go with your horse if a fire is going to impact the area. Welcome to episode four of an equine conversation, a podcast brought to you by Abby's Run Equestrian. I'm your host, Sarah Nichols. I have been teaching people about horse management, handling and riding for over 27 years through riding schools, pony clubs, working equitation clubs, adult riding clubs and privately. And I am the founder and owner of Abby's Run Equestrian. Through an equine conversation, I'll share my expertise with you, along with helping you connect to and hear from some amazing experts in their own fields. We'll also be talking with horse owners about their journey with their animals. This podcast aims to help you, the horse owner, improve your knowledge by giving you access to top quality information that will help you be the best horse owner you can be so that you can give your horses the best life possible. We'll explore ways our horses can be physically and mentally healthier through topics around training, horse health, enrichment, emergency preparedness, history, our own mental well-being and physical health and more. These podcast episodes are absolutely designed to be thought-provoking and they may bring you some ideas, approaches or information that you have not come across previously. Before we commence today's episode, I want to make three important notes. One, today we are talking about preparing for fire when you own horses. While this is a hugely important topic and anyone that owns horses needs to be aware of, there may be material covered in this episode that is triggering, particularly for those who have been involved in past fire events. You are very important. Please take care of yourself and skip this episode if it's too much for you. Number two. Also, the recommendations contained in this episode are not the be-all and end-all of preparedness information. We are making recommendations based on past knowledge and experience. However, this will not cover every situation and every eventuality. Do not constrain your actions to what is mentioned in this podcast. Do your own research and work with your local authorities to develop fire and emergency plans that are relevant to your specific situation. And number three, you may be wondering why we're putting this episode out on the back of the La Nina wet season and floods that we've had in Victoria and New South Wales here in Australia. While it's so far shaping up to be a quieter summer due to the weather, there will still be fires in the landscape and All this amazing grass and other vegetation growth that's happened with the wet will be creating even more fuel for future fires. The time to prepare for fires is when it is wet and ideally cold, not when the hot dry weather hits 
or when a fire is approaching, it's too late then. So please, take the time afforded to us by the wetter season here and get your fire preparation happening in a big way. Today, an equine conversation extends a warm welcome to Sharon Merritt. Sharon has been a horse owner for over 60 years, moving through pony club, adult riding and competing in various disciplines. Sharon's family have all had horses and Sharon taught at Pony Club for many years. Sharon currently owns a couple of older horses and a young colt that she is studying. Sharon's currently involved in the technical large animal rescue, which involves rescuing horses, cattle and other livestock when they become trapped in dams, creeks, horse floats in car accidents, septic tanks, etc. And Sharon has been a Country Fire Authority or CFA firefighter for 26 years and has fought fires been in charge of crews or been the incident controller and has been part of an incident management team in most states of Australia and overseas. Sharon has spent many weeks at large fires, including the Black Saturday fires in Victoria and the more recent 2019-2020 fires in Victoria and New South Wales. So welcome to an equine conversation, Sharon. Thanks so much for joining us today to talk about the issue that is so important and close to, I know, both of our hearts of preparing for fires when you own or care for horses. And I guess the question we should start with, Sharon, uh, for our listeners is what even is the Country Fire Authority or CFA and what does the CFA do? Thanks so much for inviting me along to talk about this because um, this is something that's dear to my heart as well. So the the Country Fire Authority or CFA, as we call it, is a firefighting organisation in Victoria that covers the country area of Victoria. And I'm pretty sure there's equivalent in other states and, and other countries as well. And I work for them, plus I'm also volunteer for them as a firefighter. Thanks, Sharon. So CFA has, and so you and I call it CFA, everyone listening, if you're not familiar with the Country Fire Authority uh, here in Victoria, it's pretty much known as the CFA. And so CFA, just for those who don't know, has both a paid staff base and a volunteer, a a swathe of volunteers that get involved. Yes. So there's there's probably nearly 50,000 volunteers. Wow. And a small uh, workforce that support those volunteers behind the scenes. Pretty much it's yeah, volunteers across the country area of Victoria that um, keep us safe. It's amazing. It's just amazing that the the volume of people who get involved and volunteer their time for such a, an important, you know, yeah. activity that happens, you know, so prevalently in our state. And um, for listeners who are not aware, my other half, Ben, who's part of Abby's Run Equestrian, is a CFA volunteer locally here as well. It's something that we've been involved in. So Sharon, why is it important to prepare for fires when you own or care for horses? Like why even should we be interested in this? From my point of view, I've seen both sides of it. So I see what happens in fires and I see livestock on the road. I see horses in particular in really bad situations. And I also see people, you know, like passionate about horses and trying to rescue them, probably putting themselves in danger as well. And I think we can do things better. So I think it's if we, we can make horses safer and we, we can actually then protect people as well. So it's a really important subject. And I think the more we understand the conditions that horses live in and how to make them safer from fire, the more likely we would feel more comfortable ourselves and not actually put ourselves in danger. Yeah, thanks, Sharon. I think it's a really important topic. And um, for listeners who are not aware, there there have actually been losses to human life before when people have been trying to rescue horses. And so, 
you know, from a from a human health and safety perspective, it's a really big issue. But of course, you know, the same the same has been said for horses, as you said, Sharon. You've seen horses in some pretty undesirable situations. There's certainly um, plenty of stories about um, people that have died, like leaving at the last minute and taking their horses with them. I think there was a case in Western Australia where. Um, people left with the horses and they died and so did the horses and we don't want to see that happen and we see people put themselves in danger all the time trying to get back and trying to save their horses Uh, when if they you know took some had some plans in place to start with they may not be in that situation so that's what I'd really like to talk about is how to how to plan both to leave early and find a better location for your horse or alternatively make your property safer and much easier for your horse to survive on its own. Yeah, well, that sounds such an important thing to talk about, Sharon. So maybe let's dive a little bit more into that. So how can we prepare as, as you know, horse owners and, and, and as horse owners too or carers, we, we're probably people who own property and have horses at home or we have our horses adjusted on or kept at livery on someone else's property. Or we might have a property where we have horses stay, you know, and, and people pay us to keep horses on our property. So there's probably different cohorts of people who are owners or carers. And and how can how can we prepare? What can we do? So you're right. There's very different sort of circumstances that people might be in. And I think planning is, is the key for it. Are there some things that you might be able to change and there's some things you can't change depending on the circumstances? The ideal uh, position to be in would to not be there when there's a fire and to not have your horse in, in the face of a fire as well. And that's probably easy to say but difficult to do, particularly when horses by their, their nature live in bushfire-prone areas. If you know that there's a large fire in the landscape and it's heading towards your town, then, yes, you could probably, you know, the day before it's due to get there, move your horse to a different location where it might be safer. But you don't always have that option. Sometimes a fire might start nearby and you might be at work that day and you might not be able to get back. So you need to have more than one plan. So certainly the plan not to be there is an ideal one, uh, but you need to have a plan that if you can't evacuate quick enough, if you, you can't get back and you don't want to be doing this at the last minute, you don't want to be coming back at the last minute while a fire's there and you don't want to be evacuating when the fire's in the landscape close by. I'm just jumping in here to say too that it's incredibly important not to leave late with your horse or horses. One of the worst things imaginable would be to be trapped on the road, perhaps due to fallen trees or power lines down, and have a fire front approaching when you're trapped in the car and your horse is in the float behind you. So I think the first thing is if you if you're planning to have an evacuate a plan to leave early, then you need to know where you're going to go. There's certainly some safer places around. So there's sale yards and reserves, but um, all those you know, showgrounds, all those places, you need to know whether you're going to be able to get access to them and can you get in? Are you allowed to go there? The last thing you want to do is put your horse in the float, take off on a 40-degree day, be stuck in traffic and the horse is stuck in the float for the next 24 hours because you've got nowhere to go. You can't get into where you plan you plan to take it. Uh, certainly take, him, take them to an area, another a friend's farm perhaps where they've got very little grass. If you've got a lot of grass, that might be a good option. Uh, but you, you need to check ahead. You need to actually, in your plan, actually find out if these places are going to let you in and is it any safer than where you are. And then 
you need to still, if, you, if your plan is to leave early and you have checked that you can go to these places, you still need plan B because it might happen that you, you can't get back. Um, they've put roadblocks in in place already and you can't get in, you can't take your horse anywhere. So you need to really be confident that your horse can look after itself. And there's a lot we can do. It's sometimes difficult if you're adjusting at a property, but there's still a lot you can do as well, even if you are. Certainly talk to um, the property managers if you're adjusting about what their plans are for the property if, if it's impacted by fire. Uh, so we start with, I think, things like, you know, make sure your horse hasn't got a rug on, make sure it hasn't got a fly veil on, make sure it hasn't got a halter on. If, if embers land on, on your horse and it has a rug and that rug catches on fire, your horse has no hope of getting it off and it will burn to death. So if you don't have those things on, if embers land on the horse, the horse will get rid of them off, off them, they'll roll, they'll shake, they'll do whatever they need to, but they've got a far better chance than if their rug catches on fire. I've seen some pretty horrific pictures of horses with burns around their heads because they've had fly veils on and they've had halters on and things like that that um, they haven't been able to get off. They melt, they they burn. Uh, so and I understand that sometimes people want to keep cotton rugs on in summer because they're showing their horse. They don't want them to get sunburnt. They don't want their coat to get bleached. Uh, I have a Cremello horse with pink skin. So I understand that dilemma, but I would rather um, she got sunburnt than burnt to death in a fire. So, you know, there's the choices you've got to make. Um, but yeah, I understand it's sometimes difficult. Another key thing to focus on is the paddock you have your horse in. So they need to, it needs to be in what we call an eaten out paddock. So an eaten out paddock is where the dirt patches are bigger than the grass patches. So the Jenny Craig paddock. And ideally, if you can have your Jenny Craig paddock, your eating out paddock next to your house or close to your house, and that's actually providing protection to your house as well, because that's going to reduce the flame height and the spread of the fire. And what you need to understand too is that the more grass there is, the higher the flame height and the faster it will spread. So for instance, on perhaps an extreme day, you might get... Um, fire spread in excess of 125 metres a minute in natural grass. If it's an eaten nap paddock, it could be below 50 metres a minute. So there's a big difference in how fast it's spread. But most importantly, the big difference is the flame height. So you could have flames in excess of three metres high in a natural grass paddock, and it could only be less than half a metre in an eaten out paddock. So if a horse has to get through those flames when the fire, fire comes through, the chance of getting through unscathed is much greater in an eaten out paddock than, than one with natural grass. It's incredibly important that you do not put your horses in enclosed indoors spaces during emergency events like fire. In a fire situation, being somewhere indoors like a stable gives the horse no options for escape and the outcome could be incredibly traumatic for all concerned. Sharon, what will horses tend to do in the face of oncoming fire? They'll move away from the fire as long as they can. And then once they're cornered, then they will go through the, the, the flame front into the burnt ground because they've got nowhere else to go. So you want to actually make it so that they can actually get through without getting burnt. They need a, a big enough area too that they can get a good gallop in. It's no good if they're in a tiny, tiny paddock and they haven't really got anywhere to go. 
uh, it's going to be hard for them to move away from that flame front and that, that radiant heat and then to actually take off quickly and go through the flames. So they need a decent-sized paddock. And so we often say to people, open all your internal gates so that they can actually move around. Don't open the external gates because the last thing you need is the horse out on the road. Uh, fire trucks come flying down those roads. They've got lights. They've got sirens. People probably on the road panicking. And the chance of your horse surviving out on the road is probably pretty minimal compared to in their paddock. And also keep in mind that if your horse is involved in an accident, you are liable for any damage that um, that horse causes. So definitely keep your external gates closed. Open the internal ones. Have an area, and, and you might need to manage your paddock so that you can have an area that's eaten out. So continually keep that area grazed over summer and keep that um, that grass down and so that they've got a, a refuge area they can come back to. There's there's other places you can put them as well, like on a sand menage is good, providing you've got a good water supply for them and providing there's not bush or buildings next to that menage because if there are and, no, and the bush catches on fire or the buildings catch on fire, the radiant heat from those those buildings and that bush, it can be so bad that the radiant heat alone could kill the horse. So again, best option is often that eat and out paddock, providing you haven't got bush nearby. Is there more that we can do to prepare our properties, Sharon? There's a few other things I suppose you can do is that, um, you know, if you've got time, if you know there's a fire coming, you can actually plough a break around your property. But that's not always an option, especially if you're adjusting somewhere. And if you in, you've got your paddocks divided up to small horse paddocks, then um, that can be a lot more difficult. If there are trees along the edge of that plough break, that plough break is not going to be very effective because it will fire will probably climb up the trees and spot over it. And it needs to be ploughed, not, not just slashed grass. That won't actually stop a fire. I'm interrupting this conversation for just a moment to give some context. During Black Saturday in 2009, sadly over 170 human lives were lost and the impact to the community and to wildlife and livestock, including horses, was immense. Many burnt areas were declared a crime scene, which meant that horse owners were not allowed back to their properties or to access their animals for some days. Water and feed accessibility for animals left at home was a really big issue. So therefore horses died because they had no water for a long period of time uh, after the fire went through. So they didn't die from the fire, but they died from lack of water. So it's really important to ensure that your water supply is really good and that ideally you would have a large dam that they can access. If you haven't got a dam that they can access, then concrete water troughs are good because they won't um, melt in the fire. And even if the plumbing to the troughs melts or pumps stop working, they should have enough water in them until you can get back in. If you have plastic water troughs, then you can still do things to protect those water troughs. You can um, brick around them. You can put corrugated iron around them. There's still a few things you can do to actually protect those water troughs from melting as well. What if your plan is to leave early, but like us, you've got multiple horses and only a two-horse float? I suppose going back to your two plans, you know, if you're planning to evacuate, 
because uh, the fire's coming in, you, you have got time and you've got more than two horses and only a two-horse horse float, then, you know, do you have time to make multiple trips? You may not. So then you're going to have to decide, well, which, which of your favourite two are you going to take? And um, nobody wants to make that decision. So it's another reason why, you know, you still need to have more than one plan. And, of course, people with um, stallions, um, it's going to be even more difficult for them to just, like, open all internal gates or take your stallion somewhere else. Things like that might also cause some problems. Hey, Sharon, I'm thinking too, um, you know, you were talking about you making use of the Jenny Craig paddock, you know, and having the paddock that's that's really eaten out. And I know for some people that there, there can be various reasons why it's really challenging to get horses to eat out a paddock, whether whether that paddock is full of weeds, you know, so it's not ideal grazing ground for horses or whether the horses have um, physiological issues, maybe something like EMS and, you know, may, may prohibit their grazing. So I think another option for people would be if, if they've got other livestock to use yes. the other livestock to their advantage to cross graze or, or if not to have livestock, but to keep it mowed really short yeah and make sure it stays really short yeah if you if you don't want to graze your paddocks with your horses to a bare minimum certainly having other livestock running on them is really good and i like i personally find having um cattle coming through uh after the horses is great you have less weed problems because the cattle will often eat the, the weeds that um the horses won't if you haven't got that option either then you're certainly slashing the grass and keeping it really short is a great idea although you don't want to slash it at the last minute and have long dead grass lying on the ground and it's something you would need to do regularly Sharon one of the things you were saying before that really struck me and I know when when we've attended sort of pre-season fire briefings both through our day jobs and through um, you know, local CFA activities is the is the point around radiant heat, and so you know it's really I think good for people to be aware of what um, forest exists around where their horse is, whether they you know that's where they live or where their horse is adjusted, and sort of what m- more densely forested area exists around there. But as you said, you know, due to the nature of horse keeping, they often are in fire prone areas, and. I know some people can get really, really concerned about that, particularly when we have a bad fire season or, you know, places get impacted by fire. But vegetation offers a lot. You know, vegetation is not is not kind of the, the criminal in the story. No. And the benefits that provides in terms of shade for, for us and our animals and, you know, protection from wind and storms is is huge. And I think just sometimes I reckon it's really good to just kind of say, you know, vegetation isn't the bearer of all evils um, yeah. and it's just about having that balance and making sure we have vegetation but we also have those lovely open, you know, Jenny Craig grazed down paddocks with minimal vegetation but that isn't to say we go and clear the vegetation like crazy people and end up with this barren landscape. <laughs> I think, you know, there's, there's probably a balance in there that that we need for our yeah. horse's health, you know, the whole time. Totally. Yeah, so we need to be yeah very conscious about the bush that's around us and radiant heat because that's going to the bush that's going to is going to give off a lot more radiant heat than than grass and I mean, even grass fires can give off an incredible amount of radiant heat. I think a person can withstand two thousand you know kilowatts per meter of radiant heat you know if, if a hundred meter fire front and grass comes across whereas a firefighter can probably withstand about 4,000 kilowatts of heat because of our protective clothing 
a brick house about 8,000 kilowatts of, of heat, but an, eat, an eaten-out paddock will still give off 2,000 kilowatts of heat. A natural grass paddock will give off about 23,000 kilowatts of heat. So that's that's a lot. And um, that's why, it's so going back to that, that paddock, it needs to be big enough so they can actually move away from that radiant heat. And bush will give off in more radiant heat. But it doesn't mean we need to go and clear all bush. The, the good thing about trees is that they can act, they can be a windbreak. They can act as an ember trap as well. So they can actually reduce embers coming through. And um, the horses certainly need shade. And, uh, you know, if you're going to take their rugs off them, they're going to need that shade. So, you know, it doesn't mean you're going to actually go and get rid of all the bush, rid of all the trees. The radiant heat can come from the grass as well and that the trees certainly provide other benefits. The other thing is um, identifying your horse. So if your horse is, is branded, you know, keep a record of, of that, keep a record of, of all their markings, any whirls on their coats, because if they do get out and, and someone rounds them all up, you'll need to be able to identify your horse. Ideally, microchipping is, is fantastic, and I, I think most um, breeders now microchip horses um, vets will microchip them as well um, if you haven't got any of that then even you know like so, planting something in their mane that took some id some you know venting crayon across their back with your phone number all those sorts of things can help as well uh, just in case they do get out sharon what should we be looking to protect besides our horses Another thing to protect besides the horses is your food supply for them so if um, a fire comes through it's unlikely to have just impacted your property. It's probably going to impact a huge number of properties and you're going to lose all your grass. So there goes all your food for your horse. If you've got a good hay supply, try and make your hay shed as protected as possible. So keep everything clear of it. Keep um, keep it all the sticks, everything breaked up from around it. Keep the grass really short. I still won't guarantee that the hay shed survives, but do what you can as far as maintenance goes to protect that hay. If um, you do lose your hay shed or you haven't got a good supply of food, it's not as simple as just driving down to the local feed store and buying some more because everyone else that's lost all theirs will also have gone down and probably got there before you. And it might be very difficult. You might have to travel great distances to get food for your horse as well as the water. I mean, if you can ideally take them off the ground after the fire, that would be good. You, if you're binge, you can put them somewhere else in someone else's property until the grass grows. It doesn't take long for the grass to come back, but it will still be a while and they will need food in that time. And I know, Sharon, one of the things I know that we, we saw particularly in uh, Black Saturday, I think more than 1920, is you, you might leave to go and buy feed, but you might not actually be able to get back in to your property there might be roadblocks and so you don't want to end up in that situation either where you can't actually get out to purchase food so um i'll talk a little bit about roadblocks you can get out you won't necessarily get back in and um this can be a problem for a lot of reasons if you think you're going to go out and get feed and come back in it might be difficult you may not get back in if you need to take your horse somewhere else again but want to go home again you may not get back in if you need help from the vet and you need to take your horse out, you may not get back in. Vets probably have a better chance of getting in than you have of getting out, but it doesn't mean that they will get in either. Again, thinking back to Black Saturday, it was declared a crime scene. So that doesn't mean that everyone can just go in and out as they like. 
until investigation is completed. You know, I mean, it, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but, you know, you might be able to meet the vet at the roadblock. And, and I know it doesn't make sense that they can get there and back and you can get there and back, but you can't cross that imaginary line. But um, that that is a reality, unfortunately. It's not ideal, but I just think you should be aware these things can happen. One good thing to do is, in Victoria at least, um, you can register your property and get a property identification code. It's called a PIC. And you do this through Department of Agriculture. And I think we're going to provide a link for that. And I'm not sure if other states or other countries have a similar thing with their equivalent Department of Agriculture. But in fires, these uh, the Department of Ag is often left, let in a lot earlier than everyone else. And if they have properties on their register, they will go and check the welfare of the animals that are registered with them. They'll check whether they're injured or whether they need water or food. So uh, I really stress that that's really important to actually register and get a, a PIC number from the Department of Agriculture. And we'll include that link in the show notes. So anyone who's in Victoria, you'll be able to go through to the show notes for this episode of the podcast and, and click through that link if you don't already have a property identification code. And if you are adjusting your horse on someone else's property, it's worth having a conversation with them to check that they've got a, a property identification code or a PIC um, as well. And if you're in other states or other countries, check in with your um, local government service to see if they've got an equivalent system set up that you can register your property and livestock numbers with. Yes, it's absolutely important. There's not enough fire trucks to send a truck to every property, but um, when we do try and protect properties, we need access. And if your property has good access, you're more likely to get truck there than if you naturally you haven't got good access. So, you know, we need about, you know, four metres, four metre gate widths to get a truck in. If you've got small horse paddocks with little laneways, then there's no way we're going to get a truck down those laneways. Uh, so just, you know, when you're designing your property or redesigning it, you know, try and take into account, you know, an emergency if we need to get trucks in there, can we? Um, so access is really important. Although there's no guarantee, again, because the trucks will be focusing on where the fire front is. Let's talk about, I suppose, the fire once it's gone through and um, you've got burnt ground and you've got horses on that burnt ground and, and they've survived. Really hot ground is not very good for horses' feet and can actually cause laminitis. So you really need to get them off the hot ground, cool their feet down, even if you wet down an area if you can, and get them standing on that cool cool ground so that they don't get laminitis. There's some other problems. Um, if there are trees in the paddock that have burnt, then they can be dangerous, they can lose limbs, they can fall over. Uh, need to keep the horses away from those trees. Sometimes when the fire goes through, it'll burn the roots of the trees and it'll be burning underground and you won't be aware of it. It will be burning for quite some time. It can burn for days and days. That eventually weakens the, the roots and the ground. And if the horse or yourself steps where that, that ground is, you can actually sink into it and get you know, third-degree burns almost instantly. So really um, stress like fencing off areas where, where there are trees just to keep everyone away to, to ensure that that area is cool and there isn't anything burning underground. Water supply. So I talked earlier about having concrete troughs or a dam 
The other thing to be aware of with your water supply is often when we're putting out fires, we'll use Class A foam and we'll use fire retardant from aircraft. Now that can contaminate the water supply, contaminate your own water supply. So you can end up with um, retardant on house roofs and then that washes into your water, your own water tank. You can end up with retardant in dams, Class A foam things like that. So you really need to inspect your water supply and, and check um, that it hasn't been contaminated and also get contaminated from just the ash from the fire. So you need to, you might need to actually buy water in for a while until, until, that, until your water supply is cleaned or your tanks are cleaned out. You can tell if it's retardant because it's pink, everything will be pink. And if it's class A foam, there'll be, it'll be sudsy and, and things like that. Fencing is another thing. So you might have lost your fencing. So you need a really good, I suppose, kit of emergency things to keep um, safe until after the fire front. And, and I recommend putting them in things like um, a metal rubbish bin, something that won't mount, melt, but you might need a temporary electric fence unit, some electric tape, wire cutters, some basic first aid um, materials like you know, bandages and water and salt. You can make your own saline for washing out any wounds things like that. If you buy saline, it tends to expire before you get to use it. I think, um, yeah, there's some really important points that you're making, Sharon. And I know, you know, for us, we enacted our fire plan in the here at Abbey's Run in the 1925s. They were not all that far from us and the weather was doing some strange things. The fires were creating their own weather system as they can do. And we've experienced here before. And so we fully enacted our fire plan and we encompassed a lot of the things that you've spoken about today, having both of us gone through the Black Saturday fires and had friends and family impacted by that and had to, in Ben's case, he worked, was working and involved from a, a work perspective in the Black Saturday fires. And so we were very mindful. We, we were staying and defending, which is not always recommended. It's great if you can leave early and you're in a position to do that. Um, when we bought our property, well, actually, I should back the truck right up, Sharon. When we bought this property, um, we've been here for almost seven years, I think it is. We looked on the map at where the forest was. We looked at where the nearest bush was and which direction it was from us and what angle the slopes were on. And we also looked at the access roads and made sure that we could get out very easily by multiple routes if we needed to in an emergency. Um, we're super aware of people getting trapped, particularly at Black Saturday, you know, down sort of dead end roads with, you know, one way in and one way out and, and areas where there's sort of kind of get stuck and a, and a mass population tries to exit at once. That's the other thing I think people need to be aware of. If you if your horse is somewhere and there's a lot of people there and there's sort of mate one major road out, then those roads are going to be so super busy, people trying to get out. So we thought about all of that before we moved here. And then when we, you know, we've had fire plans and then when we were confronted with the 1925s being not far from us, we decided that the key thing for us to try and save on our property was actually a water tank with a trough right beside it so that we could have water after the fire front had passed for our horses. And we had set it up that that, that trough and tank was in the middle of essentially a Jenny Craig area. Um, yeah. So it was pretty much, you know, bare dirt or, you know, close to bare dirt around that. And we had, we loaded up the float with hay, enough hay that we thought would get us through a couple of weeks and enough feed for a couple of weeks and everybody's head collars and our first aid kit. and 
put that right beside the trough and for, and the tank and for us and they've got the horses near all of that and then that was what we had planned to defend if it came to that and and very thankfully for us it, it didn't um, and That's we you know have fire pumps and and yeah fire pumps and hoses we decided that our house you know unfortunately I think the build of our house we're up on stumps it's timber uh, it's got vegetation around it. I think the reality for our house is that it would go. And, you know, while that's very sad, life is more important than than that. And, um, you know, we have a shed and that's great, but there's, you know, machines go in the shed and that's kind of flammable stuff in there. So, you know, when it, when it really came, push came, came to shove, um, we were really thinking about what are we going to need in the immediate aftermath. And I should say too, the other thing we packed was not just food for the horses, we packed food for us and water for us. Yeah. And um, we have dogs, so they, you know, they were factored into that and we were able to then defend, you know, the, the horse float with what we needed, the trough and the tank beside it and our car, one of the cars with the dogs in it and and defend that. Yeah, we're just super aware of that and, and super aware too. I think one of the things you said that people who haven't gone through it can can forget is that they're just not, they're just not enough fire trucks. And, you know, you said CFA has... 50,000 volunteers or close to, that can sound like a lot. But when you have a fire event like the 1925s, you know, which were New South Wales and Victoria, and I think there were some in Queensland uh, around that same time, and they had started in, well, a friend in New South Wales impacted in, I think, in August 2019. And so, the you know, by the time the fires were near us, the fire services were so stretched to their limit and they just are not enough fire trucks to go round, and that's the reality. So people don't expect that a fire truck will come because it it likely won't. As you know, as you said, Sharon, you prepare for it and you make sure you've got appropriate access because sometimes the fire is small and they will come, but you just have to prepare for for all eventualities. Excellent. And Sharon, one of the things I know we thought about, you know, we we had some lovely, lovely, lovely kind friends offer to take our horses off site for us you know before we'd enacted the fire plan so we very generously offered to come and and float our horses to another property and that was such a lovely idea but there's such a risk in that for people and for horses if they go to an unknown property and it's very likely the fencing will be different to what they're used to right. there'll be other horses at that property that they might interact with over fencing or through fencing the pasture will be different. And so from a horse health perspective, that change, unless it's prepared for, so unless you have that well lined up ahead of time, you know where they're going, you've practiced taking them there, you know that they're comfortable in that environment, you know that the people there can give them really great care, then there's there's, there's quite an inherent risk in that. And particularly if you take them there and then leave them, if they have a colic episode or fence injury or something goes pear-shaped and also you might be away from then the vet that you're comfortable with so you're dealing with different veterinary services and it's not to say that this all can't work but it's just all that stuff Sharon I think that we all have to plan for and think about ahead of time and and just be super mindful of so that we're ready. That's right and and a few things here you said triggered triggered my memory too is like when you take your horse to, if you decided to leave and take your horse to somewhere like a showgrounds or um, a sale yards, they often expect you to stay there with them. So it's not like just take your horse, leave it, go home and protect the property. So you need to actually check that as well, that, yeah. that you don't have to stay there with them. And I don't know if you've, you know, you're trying to load horses into a float 
and you're stressed and you're in a hurry, that is the time <laughs> they're not going to get in. <laughs> yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so, um, they pick up on that and they go, no, nah, I'm not getting in there. I can tell there's something wrong. And, yeah, Murphy's Law is that if you're trying to do it in a hurry, they won't get on there. Absolutely. I suppose the other thing I haven't spoken about is power lines and a few problems with lots of problems with power lines. That, that could be one of the reasons that you can't get back in is that trees and power lines are down across the roads. Power poles burn, power lines come down, trees come down with them, and often the roads are physically blocked and you can't get out, you can't get in until they're cleared. And that takes a long time. And then there's power lines across properties, there's swirl lines, which are those single wire earth returns, which are really quite high voltage, and they come down and they're often not sure where they're down when they're trying to get the power connected again. Um, they can try and re-energize them and still have a power line down. So you might think that dead power line in your paddock is dead and you step within eight metres of it and you can be electrocuted as they repower it because they don't realise it's down. So you don't have to need to even touch it. You just have to be within eight metres of it. So if you have power lines that run through your property, I would not put horse in there or put anyone in there until um, that power line is repaired. And um, that could take some time or at least fence it off so that no one can get to it. Um, but yeah, all, all this, yeah, trying to move horses is, can be very difficult and trying to find somewhere safe for them. Yeah. It's not going to get impacted as well. My friends had that in WA not that long ago where they moved their horse to somewhere that they thought would be safe. And a day or two later, they had to move it again because it yeah. wasn't. The fire front had shifted because that's the other thing too, that fire fronts shift, you know, when and the wind you, changes come around. New fires start. <laughs> um, yes. So, yeah, it's why, I mean, horses live in a bushfire-prone environment and it is very hard to to find an area that's 100% safe. And, it, and if you do just pick up your horse in the float and you take it to an evacuation centre, how long can you stand in that car park with your horse for? You know, you could be you could be out for, once you're out too, there's no going back and then, then you're stuck. And as you said before, Sharon, I think what, what's been observed in fires and I know talking to our local AgVic vet um, who I've spoken to a number of times about this you know what what has been seen with horses behavior in fires is that if they're set up well so in a large area like you've specified a large area they've got water there's minimal to no grass so that the flame height is is low enough that they can jump it when push comes to shove and that the ground is not burning for an extended period afterwards so that the heat can come out of the ground relatively quickly, is that horses are pretty clever in yeah. fire situations. And they, you know, they know how to take care of themselves for the most part. Um, you know, there's the occasional um, poor situation, you know, where it doesn't work out. I know I can think of one just now where, you know, um, a lot of horses survived and, and, and one didn't. But, you know, you, you give them the best chance when you have them in that open space. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got access to water, there's minimal to no grass, and they've got a big space, as you say, so they can get a bit of speed up to get away from the fire and jump it if necessary. That's right. Um, I think that's And as you said, they're probably more confident and comfortable in their own property than in someone else's. And, yes. yes yep. like as stressed as if they're in a strange paddock that they're not familiar with. Yep. One of the things I know we feel really passionate about here at Avi's Run Equestrian, Sharon, is the, the importance of training. So, you know, we tell people, I think, to have 
you know, fire plans and to have multiple fire plans that that look for look at different scenarios. You know, the fire that starts you know, 100 kilometres away, you know, it's coming. So you've got time to prepare and get out. But then you've got the fire that starts down the road and you might not have time. So there's having your fire plans written up and making sure that, you know, everybody that lives with you and probably your nearest and dearest know what that is. So that yeah. people know what they have to do um, and everybody's on the same page. And, and that you've got that possibly um, displayed, you know, in key locations at your property. But the part of that that we're really passionate about is the need to then be training, training your horses to prepare for whatever those plans are. You know, if your plan is to leave and your plan is to take your horses or horse away, then you need to have, I think it'd be like you said before, Sharon, you know, float loading your horse at the best of times can be stressful for people let alone when there's you know <laughs> you know there's fire coming and so i think if if you're planning to leave then your float training and float loading and horse traveling on the float needs to be impeccable in a good times you know like you really have to do that and then that that almost is a fairly obvious one but if you know you you mentioned earlier about opening internal gates and i know that there are some horses that are not comfortable going through gateways unless right. a human is leading them. That's right. Or they're not comfortable with the horse in the paddock next door, you know. They're... Well, that's right. Yeah. You have to kind of practice for these scenarios. So the horses need to, you know, know about going through gates. And if they're going to be moved to a paddock that they've never been in before on the same property, that might be a little bit scary. So you'd want to practice having yeah. your horse, you know, or horses go into that Jenny Craig paddock for periods of time and get familiar with that space. and then. If the plan is to let horses together that haven't been together before, there's that to practice for as well. That's right. And to make sure that those horses are going to be able to be comfortable, you know, going together rather than just, you know, because the last thing you need is that stress, you know, of that fire scenario coming through and suddenly you're facing all these unknowns for your horse and you've got a plan, but you've not trained for it for your horse. You know, you're maybe driving away, leaving the horses set up to survive because you're leaving and the horse is there, but you're mega stressed. You know, you have this additional stress load that you just, you you could avoid having by preparing your fire plans and then training for them, training your horses for, for whatever those eventualities are. And I think it's so empowering that we can do that and that people can do that and then, you know, the, the risk is reduced and the chance of survival is increased. Um, and that's that's got to be a good thing. That's right. And um, I have I've seen so I mean, people be surprised at horses in fires. Um, they're often not as panicky in their own paddock as probably we are. <laughs> I've seen horses quite calmly stand there and are in the smoke and, and watching the fire as it comes towards them and, and be quite calm. Because they're in their own paddock, they're in familiar area that that they're used to. Might be different if they were somewhere else. And often, I think people just panic more than they do, and and we try and at attempts of trying to help them, we make things worse sometimes. Uh, we just need to try and make things that we can do safer for them. And I think they'll be fine in most cases. No guarantees, but in most cases, I think if we can, um, yeah, get them used to being together, get them used to going into that Jenny Craig paddock having the Jenny Craig paddock, having a good water supply in an area where there's not going to be too much radiant heat, take all their rugs off, take everything else off them, you know, just let them look after themselves. I think if we're not home, then we can be a bit more confident that they've got a, a good chance of surviving. 
often um, people trying to get back will put themselves at huge risk. And you might not be able to because if there's trees down and power lines down and things like that, you, you physically mightn't be able to. But I often see on Facebook too, a lot of well-meaning people will go, I'll come and get your horses, I'll come and help you. And people will be willing to do just about anything to go and help animals. And it's often risking their own lives, sometimes unnecessarily. You know, you don't need to do that. Yeah, so having having your plan and making sure everyone knows your plan probably reduces the chance of all these other people going up, um, spontaneously coming in to, to try and help and, and then protecting their lives by having your plan and making sure they know what your plan is. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's, I think that's really important. Yeah, I noticed a massive outpouring of the, the desire to help from people in the 1925s, particularly I think I was just maybe more aware of it. And many of my friends who live in, you know, the city and urban areas were, you know, kind of crying out for what could they do to help people. They just really wanted to mobilise. Yeah. And one of one of my top tips for people who wanted to help was to don't help all at once. Yes. Because the impact of fire is often really um, long-term. Yep. And, you know, people are without, you know, if, if people lose homes, you know, if we'd, if we'd lost our house, it would be a long time before we would have another house. Right. So yeah. the need for help and support goes on for months Very and years time. after a fire has gone past. So I think people can get really keen to help when it's really, um, you know, it's really in the media yeah. and like, it's you know, really lots of drama and people get sort of buy into that and want to do things. And I think it's really key to remember that you know, so for the nine, the people who were impacted with the 1920 fires, I'm fairly, fairly confident that there are people still without houses now and it's 2022. Mm-hmm. Of course, COVID has impacted as well. So I think it's just if, if you want to help, you know, helping immediately, you know, might be needed, but it also might be needed in six months' time, you That's know, right. um, yeah. come and help rebuild some fences or yeah. come and, you know, Whatever, whatever that might be. I know there was a there's been groups that were going around after 1920, and some people I know were volunteers in those groups that were helping with fence rebuilding for properties that had been impacted. So I think that's really impactful. So hey Sharon, I know you've kind of um, uh, covered off on I I think what I'm about to ask you, um, but I just wondered what what your top tips would be for listeners. And I suppose well, there's almost two categories here, Sharon. Uh, top tips for listeners broadly. But also, what what can people do now? You know, what can they literally go and do after they've listened to this podcast? What can they do? Sit down and write a plan. <laughs> Talk to the rest of your family about your plan and and what you want to do. Then I think the next thing will be walk around your property, go for a walk, have a look, and um, have a look at how you can make it safer. Like where do you, where do you want your Jenny Craig paddock to be, and and what's your water supply like? Can you improve your water supply? Register your property. With, if you're in Victoria with the Department of Agriculture and get a pick number if you haven't already. If you do plan to evacuate early, go, ring those places, ring the council, find out if they have places you can go with your horse if a fire is going to impact the area and find out whether that um, means that you have to stay with the horse or whether you can leave it somewhere. If, you, if your property is really not defendable and you haven't got that option of making a Jenny Craig paddock Talk to friends uh, about a plan of where you can go and where you can take your horse. But keep in mind that you have to enact that plan early, not when the fire's on your doorstep. And and I think, um, yeah, put a kit together, an emergency kit, and, yeah, especially with some temporary fencing uh, in case you lose your fencing. I think that's probably the most important things that you can do now. Yeah. 
So we'll pop links to both the CFA site and the AgVic site in the show notes yeah. for, for listeners. Please go and check those out. They've got some great information there. It If you want to go and have a look, and even if you're in other states, I'm sure that your local authorities will have similar, but you might also find value in looking at the CFA and AgVic sites as well. So the main website for CFA is www.cfa.vic.gov.au. And I'm sure you'll be able to navigate your way to to the horses and bushfires section there. We will pop it in the show notes. And the Department of Ag is... um, https colon forward slash forward slash agriculture.vic.gov.au and again there's a horses and bushfires uh, page that you'll be able to navigate to but we'll pop it into the show notes for you so that you can go directly there probably the one other thing i think sharon that i would maybe suggest people do and i know you would have been involved from the other side from the cfa side but i know ben and i have found invaluable over the years is to um, find out how you can stay in touch with what your local CFA, if you're in Victoria or your relevant authority, you know, find out how you can monitor them, whether that's via their social media pages or whether they've got an email list mail out or, or whether there's a website or what that is. And keep an eye out for pre-season briefings that they might be providing for the community or community information sessions. I know we've been able to attend a number of those over the years and also some that are specific to horses and fire. And they are just incredibly invaluable to understand what each sort of uh, season is shaping up like um, and any sort of new information or top tips. And and every time we hear this information, we get something new out of it. You know, in talking to you today, Sharon, I must confess in our setup for 1920, we didn't have fencing materials. And you, you've said that. And I thought, oh, my goodness, of course, duh, we should have you know, and we have the materials, we have a solar energizer, we've got, you know, stakes and a pole driver and tape and hooks, and we could have all that there, but we didn't. So don't just go to one session. Don't just listen to this podcast. Um, you won't have taken in everything we've said today. So do, you know, do keep finding more information and, and, and learning every year. I'm sure you would agree, Sharon, you've probably been presenting at those sessions in the past. And I, every time I, I do a presentation, I, I end up adding more things to it because sometimes I, I get good stories back from the audience about things they've done and I pick up things that way as well. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's wonderful, Sharon. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your knowledge today. You know, you've, you've got 26 years of experience and, and firsthand, you know, n- as a horse owner, but also, um, you know, working on fires and other emergencies. So your your knowledge and experience and, and advice is invaluable. I think the key for everybody listening is just that you can be empowered by being proactive ahead of time. This is not a kind of sexy thing to do, right? This is about life and, and you know, preserving life. So it's not a sexy, glamorous thing to do, but it's just so important. So please take the time and and you know get your fire plans in place, get the training happening, get your supplies sorted. And when you're doing that too, make sure you have a look into sort of preparing for fires as people. Today we've been specifically talking about preparing for fires, you know, with horses. Um, but there is a whole bunch of great information out there about preparing your house and preparing as people and making sure to leave early. So I guess I just want to thank you so much, Sharon, for your time and helping get this knowledge out to more people. It's just so, so, so important. Really appreciate it, Sharon. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thank you. 
Thanks so much for listening. We hope this episode has given you some information to take away, contemplate and put into practice. If you've enjoyed this podcast, that's awesome. We love your work. Rate, review and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and let your friends know about us too. Sign up to our mailing list at www.abbysrunequestrian.com.au to be the first to hear about upcoming activities and programs on offer. You can also find us at Abby's Run Equestrian on Facebook. We have our Autumn Start Your Engines Course Plus Workshop happening from the 24th of March through until the 2nd of April 2023. Start Your Engines Course Plus Workshops are a week-long online course culminating in a full weekend workshop on-site at Abbey's Run Equestrian in Northeast Victoria. The week-long course content is designed to fit in around your daily work life so you're not needing to take time off. The course includes short, bite-sized presentations and small but important pieces of homework to get you thinking and prepared for the weekend and then when we get together it's hands-on and all systems go with us and our horses. Your learners get to stay at home where they are most comfortable. The weekend involves discussion, various games, learning and practicing mechanical skills and hands-on time with our equine team. This Course Plus workshop will help get you started or help continue your learning journey in training using positive reinforcement. Show notes from this episode are available online. Join us on next week's episode where we'll be discussing that just because it says horse on the label or comes from a saddlery or produce store, that that does not mean that your horse got the memo on what to do with or about it. This follows on from today's episode where we've mentioned the importance of training with your horse for your fire plans because I've got to tell you that your horses haven't read your fire plans either. Our intro song is Ventura by Morgan Taylor via Soundstripe with additional music from Marcus Huber also via Soundstripe. Thank you to Matthew Bliss for podcast production and consultation. If you'd like him to help with your podcast, get in touch by email at info at blissery.fm. Scratches to your ponies from the Abbey's Run Equestrian team and stay safe this fire season, everyone. <laughs>